RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. Let's say it's Tuesday night. And let's say you could really go for some Star Trek talk with your Star Trek pals. Well, that's where we come in. It's Mission Log Live. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Each week on Mission Log Live, we talk to you and you talk to us. You call in, you chime in, you ring in with your questions and comments. Tonight, we welcome back a friend of this show, someone who has unique insights into Star Trek, Dr. Ali Matu. He's the host of The Psych Show, which we'll familiarize you with by and by. I will also talk about whatever you want to talk about, provided you let us know what you want to talk about. You can click on the link in our Zoom meeting, or you can use the one-tap phone for form from your smartphone. You know, that gets me every week, every week. I stumble <laughs> over that right there. Uh, you can even call us the way Antonio Meucci intended, by dialing numbers 669-900-6833. Those numbers again, 669-900-6833. Then you enter the meeting code that you'll find in the show description and the comments, and away we go. Thank you to everyone who's joining us live tonight. By the way, Ken, uh, we, we are already hearing from people. Uh, Donna, uh, John McQuillan says, shall we make some green memories? Um, I, Whoa, you know, is yeah, he coming on to us this early in the show? Forward. It's a little forward. <laughs> Kim says hi, Lisa says hi, uh, Paul says my favorite night of the week with my Mission Log fam. Hi, Ken and John. Hi, back to you, Paul. Uh, Meredith says, uh, can she be named number one fan? And I think we'll explain why a little bit later. <laughs> mm, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's she's definitely in the running at this point, I will say. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, and there she is, Tracy Lee Coco saying, well, hello, boys. Hello, <laughs> back to you. Pleasure as always. So if you are catching the show right after the live broadcast, well, we welcome you as well. Remember, you will find us here each week and the previous episodes at facebook.com slash missionlogpod or at youtube.com slash roddenberryprod. Yeah, if you're more of an audio-only kind of person, well, we've got you covered there, too. The audio from this show goes out in its very own podcast feed. You can find that on iTunes and wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. Just search for Mission Log Live. Hey, speaking of fine podcasts, head over to podcast.roddenberry.com, where you will find links to all of our shows. You got your Mission Log Live. You got Mission Log. You have the Trek Files, Women at Warp, Priority One, and we'll just trail it off right there. And as long as you are here with us right now, like and share, because sharing is caring. Yeah, actually, like and share if you're catching it one of those places later as well. Uh, I don't think we've ever asked people to leave reviews in iTunes, but, you know, as long as we're begging... We could certainly ask you to do that as well. Uh, one thing to point out, by the way, for people who are listening on the on the audio feed later, we often talk about the fact that we're on Facebook Live Live. Somebody did actually mention last week um, that we're on live on YouTube as well. You don't just catch it there later. Hmm. So if you are somebody who, and I know a number of people who have over the years, have decided that Facebook is not for you and that you, you, know, you just don't want to bother with them, but you do still want to catch the show live, uh, youtube.com slash Roddenberry prod. Uh, we'll make that happen when it happens. Yeah. Now that, that, that uh, said all the comments, all that action is here on Facebook. So, yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's because yeah, we can only here. watch, yeah. we can only watch so many things. Like I'm watching John making sure he's not stealing stuff. I'm right. also reading our, uh, reading our notes. Uh, occasionally I look at the video. Um, 
very occasionally I look at the video. I assume <laughs> that if I go off camera, somebody's going to let me know. So uh, that's in, that's in other people's hands. Brendan does a does a wonderful job making sure that uh, we stay in focus. Hey, uh, speaking of places where you can see us, places that we do stuff, places that things happen. Uh, have, have you heard of this uh, virtual reality, John? This is exciting, Ken. I might have heard of it. It's kind of kind of like a holodeck, but kind, uh, well, kind of. Yeah, I would say the holodeck is kind of like virtual reality. Actually, since virtual okay. reality did predate the holodeck. Wait a minute. No, I heard of the holodeck before I heard of virtual reality. So fine, we can say it whichever way you want to. All right. Yes. So, so I, yeah, there's I, I've a, heard of the VR. Yeah. Okay. So we've got a thing that we're doing. We've actually been teasing this for quite a while because I think when we started Mission Log Live in what, September of last year, that we thought we were going to start the VR thing in September of last year. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> for various reasons, it has not gone quite, the, uh, quite as quickly as we had thought it would. But um, there is a VR platform with which we're working. At. They're called Sensar. Um, if you want to know a little bit about their bona fides, their parent company is Linden Labs, which, of course, is the parent company of, uh, of Second Life as well. So they've done this, like, you know, big world, lots of people bumbling around, talking to each other thing before, uh, except uh, Second Life was just, you know, on a flat screen. And uh, Sensar is actually a, a VR thing. You can do it just on the computer, but you can also do it if you got the headset and all that. Uh, we've got the headsets and all that. So we're actually going to be doing a hangout uh, in late May. Uh, that'll be the first one, probably the first of maybe a few, maybe many. We'll see how the first few go. Um, so circle the, uh, circle the calendar, uh, the 22nd of May. That is a Tuesday night. Uh, we're going to do this show. And then, you know, because we just can't get enough of this show, we're going to do this show in, uh, in Sensar later as well. And we'll have more information about that next week as well. Yeah, just uh, suffice to say, we have some very exciting stuff planned. We have a very cool environment for you to hang out in. So if you're one of those people and you're within the sound of our voices and you've got the, uh, you've got the VR goggles, uh, we hope to blow your mind at the end of May. And if you don't have the VR goggles, you can still experience it in two dimensions. Um, so, yeah, mark that on your calendar. We'll, we'll hop over there right after we're done with the live show and have a little, a little mission log hangout at sansar.com. That's S-A-N-S-A-R.com. You can find out all the, uh, the specs and requirements there. And we hope to see you after our live show again, May 22nd. So spread the word. We'll meet um, Dr. Ali Matu in a few minutes. So if you have questions about the psychology of Star Trek or the psychology of science fiction in general, uh, now is the time to call in and be ready. Again, you can click the Zoom link or call 669-900-6833, 669-900-6833. You know, it's interesting that we're finally ready to talk about our VR thing because that's actually going to be a good bit of the conversation that we're having tonight as well. Um, reality versus virtual reality and what have you. And in fact, that's a big part of our poll this evening as well. But before we get to tonight's poll, uh, let's talk about last week's poll. Yeah. So last week when we had Doug Drexler on and a good part of that conversation was about the 1964 World's Fair of New York and how that influenced Star Trek, the design language of World's Fairs. We asked you if you had ever been to a World's Fair. Now, I'm a little bit surprised. Only 14% of you said, yes, you had been to a World's Fair. 86% of you 
said no. And I realize that World's Fairs are a little out of fashion. Um, I, the, the last big ones in the U.S. were in the 80s. And there are little ones that have cropped up around the world, um, but it's just not really a thing anymore. I'm, I'm glad that I got to go to one. I'm glad that you got to go to one, Ken. But yeah. uh, it seems like the heyday was over pretty much by the early to mid-70s. The last one I remember hearing about was in Vancouver, obviously not in the U.S., but Vancouver is the last one that I remember hearing about. Had the, at the time, the largest collection of holograms anywhere, back when mm. holograms were still, you know, neat and new. <laughs> not that they're not still neat, but I mean, they were practically unheard of. Well, not practically unheard of because we knew what they were, but... Anyway, I remember that being an exciting one. I want to say that was late 80s, early 90s. And that's the last one I remember actually hearing happen. So mm. uh, we well, can talk Mark, about Mark, World's wait, Fairs all say, show uh, long. huh? <laughs> Carlos just said Epcot doesn't count. Ep, uh, Carlos, I, I disagree. Maybe now Epcot doesn't count. But in the early 80s, that, that was the model. That was the thing. It was the closest thing you could get to it. <laughs> See, I was getting about talking about World's Fairs all episode long, although I will oh, say we'll there are still parts of Epcot that are. If you go to the land and then yeah. take that boat ride, uh, there's just some amazing stuff happening there, like real World's Fair kind of stuff. And uh, and nary a Pixar character to be found, I think, <laughs> at least the last time I was there. Anyway, we got we had a whole other topic this week. We got a whole other poll this week as well. This week, our poll question, is an experience on the holodeck real? That's a question. Is an experience on the holodeck real? Uh, so far, the answers are 66% yes, 34% no. And just so I'm clear, 66% of people say yes. They're not saying, yeah, it's 66% real. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, get your vote in, if you will. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And get your vote in, if you will. Is an experience on the holodeck real? Uh, find the poll, cast your vote, and then, uh, and then join in on our conversation. Because it is time to begin our conversation. And here's the thing. We, I, we keep those questions a little bit vague and provocative and people will argue with us about those questions. But yeah, we know what we're doing when we pose a yes or no question with something that has a lot of facets is to get you to argue with us or amongst yourselves. <laughs> so, but now it is time to welcome our guest, Dr. Ali Matu. Ali Matu is a clinical psychologist who specializes in the treatment of anxiety and body-focused repetitive behaviors, but he's more than that. He's a geek, one who wants to bring psychology to everyone everywhere by hosting The Psych Show, writing about the psychology of science fiction at Brain Knows Better, creating mental health curriculum with the Pop Culture Hero Coalition, and presenting to the public, uh, kind of like he's doing right now on our show. Ali, <laughs> my friend, thank you so much for being back on Mission Log Live. Great to see you. John and Ken, it's so good to be back on. I uh, had so much fun last time talking Star Trek Discovery, and I am so pumped to have this discussion with you all tonight. This discussion uh, well, we, being like, you know, going all over the place. Where do you want to start? That, do you want to start TOS, TNG? All of the above? Is that an option? Well, well, you can't start at all of the above, I don't think, but sure. We'll, 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 try to hit, we'll try to hit every single bit of Star Trek in the next 49 minutes. Let's start with Star Trek Generations, because the Nexus, I think, can take us through all of the above simultaneously. Ooh, That's a good point. Wow. Plus, the 49 minutes will only feel like forever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Let's go back to the very beginning, because I know you've actually you've brought up stuff that we've talked about uh, in the show uh, for a long time. Yeah, uh, Something that I've said a couple of times, if you ain't working, you ain't living. That is the Jim Kirk creed mm-hmm. uh, from this side of paradise to the Apple. Seemingly sustainable societies were, you know, kind of anathema to Kirk. He wasn't a big fan because, you know, where's my new shirt? Where's where are your crops? Oh, I know you're living and you're perfectly fine, but it doesn't look right to me. Right. Um, just let's just start there. Is that is that colonialism? Is that just not getting something and so not liking it? Uh, what was going on at that point? That's a good question. Um, and that's a, a theme that not only do we see in Star Trek and in the next generation, and we see that play out um, throughout a lot of stories about work in the 23rd and 24th century, but we see ideas about that in a lot of other science fiction as well. And this fear of what's going to happen with new technologies, how is work going to change? What's our role in all of that? So it's a really big question. Um, Where do we take that question? Well, I think one of the interesting things about about Star Trek is we, we don't see that many different types of work on display. And the types of work that we do see are mostly Starfleet officers, scientists, diplomats, ambassadors, and that's about it. So we don't really see what people like most of our audience, most of our community would be like in that world. And we don't really see what their role of work is. And so the only, the best view that we really get is when Kirk sees these societies and where Picard meets these societies and Cisco and, and the rest of the crews that, that have uh, to come and the values that play out there. Um, so, I, I mean, there's a few areas where I think we can take this, but can looks well, like I think- well, I think I might argue that Kirk actually has sort of a mid-level management approach to the whole thing, because you're right. What we see you know, for the most part from the Starfleet people are, yes, they're ambassadors, they're, they're engineers, they're, they're captains, they're things like that. Um, when Kirk lands on a planet, though, it's miners, it's mm-hmm. farmers, it's people, right, you know, right. maybe we're at some pre-industrialized society, in which case you're talking about people who are, who are oh, toiling away to make shirts, to trade off for corn <laughs> or something like that. I mean, he lives a pretty rarefied existence as far as the people whose planets he's landing on. But then when he lands on some place that's so primitive, let's mm-hmm. say, that they haven't even figured out that they should be, you know, churning butter and then charging other people for it. Well, mm-hmm. then this isn't really a society because what the heck are you guys doing? Right, right. And that is problematic for a few different things. So, <laughs> you say. So we could get into the colonialism and we can get into ideas about uh, primitive versus advanced. But um, one of the things I want to talk to you all about here is um, what, what do most people need to be happy? What do most people need to have fulfilling lives and the way Kirk is seeing the value of, of those people and of those species and of those cultures, we can sum it up with three basic things, uh, an opportunity to enjoy 
pleasant experiences. So enjoying good food, um, enjoying entertainment, humor, stuff like that. But the problem with that is we get used to those kind of things. You buy a brand new TV, it's pretty cool for a while. You get used to it. Same thing with the new phone you get. You kind of get used to that kind of stuff. Um, the second thing is engagement, feeling really absorbed in the work that you're doing where time flies by and you don't even realize how much time has gone by um, until it's over. And so maybe these farmers are experiencing that in, in the work that they're doing. But the third thing is the most important thing, and that is gaining a sense of meaning or purpose in the work that you're doing. And here's where I th have a problem with Kirk's philosophy. Um, it, it's not just what are you doing or what are you creating, but what's the meaning and what's the purpose that you're gaining from the work that you're doing. Not all of us need to get that from our work. And in fact, a lot of us don't. A lot of us might hate our day jobs, but we get a sense of meaning and purpose maybe through our family or maybe through um, our community or um, any other kind of organization we might be uh, connected with. Maybe some of us get it from Star Trek. So the problem here is a dismissal of a lot of those things that we know are really related to happiness. And um, Kirk's just not seeing that there when he's, uh, he's interacting with, with some of these species. It's a bit of the Riker thing. What did Riker say? I am my work. Did he yeah. did, remind me, John, did he say that yeah. to Minuet or did he say that to someone else? I, I think, oh no, he did say that to Minuet. Funny you should mention yeah. Minuet because uh, I think that'll be part of our discussion tonight about, um, about life in the virtual world. But yeah, he, he dropped that little bit of philosophy on a virtual woman. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> on a virtual woman with whom he was in love, or maybe he wasn't. We can also talk about that. I yeah. guess the question that I have then along a similar line, because you're saying, Kirk basically lands with his ideas of, of how things ought to be. And it's rare that Kirk looks around and goes, okay, well, that's what I thought it should be for me, but these people seem to have something else going on. Right. Along a similar line, I wonder, um, you know, let, let, let's hit a, an easy topic. Uh, what is reality? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's such an easy topic. And <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Well, no, here's because here's the kind of question, especially where we're talking about the VR stuff and the holodeck yeah. and things like that. Yeah. If you climb a mountain on a holodeck, have you climbed a mountain? If yeah, you yeah. fall in love on the shore leave planet, have you fallen in love? I mean, I feel like I climbed a mountain and, and certainly Riker. I mean, we know that Riker was in love with Menuet because when somebody read his mind four years later, that was the love of his life. That's yeah. who they pulled out of his head as, oh, yes, okay, so this is who he loves. We know this because we've looked in his head and we've seen that. Yeah. Um, and yet, you know, then you come out of the hollow suite and you go back to Ops and DS9 or you go wherever. I mean, what's, what's the reality of the virtual reality? And, and then, like, where do those two things, do they intertwine? Or is one one, the other is the other, and Nary the twain shall meet? I feel so much more comfortable with the 10 questions you just asked than that one question <laughs> you started with. I, I don't know why. Uh, um, you have at least until the ad break to wrap it all up. So. Right. Yeah. right. Okay. So I'm going to, uh, I'm going to tackle these questions. I want to have this conversation, but I also want to throw out two, two questions that I think complicates all of this. So number one, um, we know that holodeck technology is also related to replicator technology. So, when is food real in Star Trek? And 
what does that mean for how we judge reality related to the holodeck? Is the food that's coming out of a holodeck or not coming out of a holodeck, coming out of, of a replicator, is that real? And how does that then relate to how we're judging these experiences? So that's something I always struggle with, with this conversation related to Star Trek. Um, and I'm not quite sure what the answer is to that. But it feels like it's real, but it's not really steak. Does that make any sense? I mean, you're eating something. So what you have is real, but is it really steamed Asna or is it, or, or is it something <laughs> yeah, else? But, but if a replicator can exactly replicate, we had this question on a show recently uh, that, that you and I discussed, is a replicator taking the original and scanning a copy of it, getting down to every last atom, every last molecule that made it that thing, and is able to create an exact duplicate, indistinguishable from the original, or is it creating something new based on the idea of that original? So if I had my original stake that I scanned 10, 20, 30 years ago, and the replicators is able to crank out an exact duplicate of that every time, well, good, I hope I enjoyed that stake 10, 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. But if I tell the, the replicator, make me an eight-ounce stake, well, which one is it making? And does it have some wiggle room for creativity to make something that is cooked a little more, a little less, a little saltier, a little drier, a little, you know, there are all these variations that are different, even if you go back to the same restaurant or cook the exact same recipe every single time on your own. So, yeah. And, and so this gets to the question of, of what is real? What's the real steak? And, um, there are so many different ways we can define reality. One of the ways that we're looking at that question uh, is in re in relation to virtual reality is the whole idea of presence. So how present do you feel in the virtual world? And there's a lot of different variables that have been found to be related to that. Um, one is how many sensory inputs are coming in. And sometimes you don't need all the senses to make you feel present in that environment. Uh, sometimes you might just need visual, auditory, maybe a little um, smell or olfactory sense. That kind of stuff might be enough to, to bring you in. But is it, is it about presence? Is it about how much of that stake feels real? Is it the smell, the texture of the steak? Or are we looking at exact copy of the experience? The, the molecules inside are the same. Um, the, the taste of it is exactly the same. Or does, it, or does that matter? If the ingredients are different, but the taste is the same, is that real? So getting to the holodeck question, there's a lot of ways we can tackle it. Is reality what feels real to us? like you said about climbing a mountain, um, if it appears to be similar, or is it, um, does it need to feel real on our bodies? Does, if we walk all those steps, does it need to wear our muscles out the exact same way it would in quote unquote, what is real? Um, what we're finding in a lot of the research is you don't need to replicate enough of the experience for it to feel real. When you're watching a film in a movie theater, um, you're not watching the actual thing. You're watching um, you're watching these slides basically being presented, and your um, your brain is filling in the gaps there. It feels like real motion. Is that real? Is that not real? Um, 
these are really complicated questions and it, it comes down to what we're, what we're looking for and what we want to get out of that experience and what is reality in relation to that. Our guest tonight is Dr. Ali Matu. If you have a question, you know, maybe try to blow all of our minds the way we're blowing each other's minds right now. That'd be great. Uh, you can click on the Zoom link, uh, the Zoom, you can click the link, excuse me, to join our Zoom meeting, or you can use uh, the one tap from your smartphone. You can also pick up your phone and dial 669-900-6833, 669-900-6833, and extra points to you if your phone actually has a dial. So some comments that are coming in right now. Uh, First of all, uh, John asks, are you real after you finish being transported? Man, we have had that conversation one or two times on Mission Log. That is a really tough one to answer. Um, Jason asks, what if the original steak was overcooked? Uh, Throw out that file. That is the uh, the answer to that question. And uh, Rick says, is a marathon you run on a treadmill as real as a marathon you run on the open road? <laughs> well, well. <laughs> I was going to say, like, when you're talking about climbing a mountain or something like that, you're, you're removing the sort of unpredictability of nature. And then I remembered how completely unpredictable the holodeck is. So actually, you've got just as much, it's just as much a game of chance there. But, I mean, that actually is, that actually is, it's an interesting question, and I, I don't know that you answered it, but I don't know that you can. Well, it's, the um, overcooked steak is a really good example of uh, variability. So when you go to a restaurant or when you are making food at home, there is a uh, some um, variability that comes into play. There's uh, a steak you make one night is going to be a little bit different from a steak you make another night, which is similar to going to a holodeck for a visit to Riza versus the actual Riza, the experience is going to be a little bit different. Um, I think one of the reasons why a lot of the characters, uh, assuming this is all real, which of course it's not, it's just a show, but one of the reasons why all the characters, many of the characters probably like to turn off the safeties is it introduces another layer of variability, which probably makes it feel a little bit more real. Like things could happen. I could get injured. Um, there is more, um, more risk, more uncertainty involved than there is if there are the safeties on. Um, I think that's a little bit similar to actually cooking a steak. You might overcook it. You don't know what's going to happen. And so, Introducing a little bit of variability probably is required to make holodeck food feel more real as well as a holodeck to feel more real. Well, and it seems like that that's the kind of variability when you're talking about an imaginary supercomputer that is scaled and scaled and scaled way beyond what, what we would have today. Um, you, yeah, you mentioned turning off those safety protocols. You look at an episode like uh, Elementary, Dear, uh, mm-hmm. Elementary Dear, My Dear Data. Um, the whole idea there is that the computer is learning and changing the conditions of the game over time. And certainly you and I could walk into a holodeck and run the same experience, but our personal experience of that would be very different because that yeah. is a computer that can respond and change the conditions of that, uh, of that game second by second as it's happening to, uh, to match what we want or to surprise us with maybe what we don't know we want. 
Yeah, it's it's really important to stress here how little it actually takes right now to make us feel like we're there. So one of the treatments we do in anxiety is something called imaginal exposure. So for a lot of situations that are hard for us to replicate, um, for example, uh, airplane flying. So uh, if you have a fear of flying, sometimes we can replicate that with VR. But if you don't have access to that equipment, we do things like create an imaginal script and I will record that script of, of the situation that you fear. Have you listened to that with your eyes closed? And for most people, it's enough to get your, um, your heart pumping, your sweat going, um, your anxiety kicks in. Um, and all that is, is a script that you're listening to with your eyes closed. For a lot of people, that's enough to kick enough of the senses into gear to make you feel like you're there. Now you're factoring in 24th century technology, which uh, is so far more advanced. This it's hard to imagine this stuff, not feeling real. It's hard to imagine not being able to fall in love with a hologram. I would imagine you would have more people experiencing the stuff that Barclay does um, in the 24th century. And that's actually, it's so funny that you, you so rarely see people with holodeck addiction. I think I would be in the holodeck all the time. <laughs> yeah, you may. Yes, I, I think you're right. Yeah, I think we all would. Absolutely. Um, uh, who was it? Uh, Alice says, wait, so can I claim I read a book if I only heard the audio book? Mm -hmm. <laughs> nuance of semantics is so arbitrary and uh, Carlos says what is a book so <laughs> <laughs> yeah book and book what is what book, is book? <laughs> yeah I know um, so here's a question that I sort of find myself wondering about and I feel kind of bad about this because I do have a certain amount of I have a certain amount of um, I guess snobbishness around it and I don't mm -hmm. want to but if somebody comes to me and says that they've been someplace like here in the States, Epcot, Vegas, whatever, and they say, Oh, it's just like being in this other country. Mm. Okay. The only other country I've ever been to, well, there are two Canada and France. Those are the only two other countries I've ever been to. So I cannot tell you that whatever pub, you know, in whatever city in the U S was just like being at a British pub. Mm -hmm. I can't say that, but I won't say that either. And there's a little something in me that's like, it's not really. But if that person comes out feeling like that actually really did happen, is it is it only our sense of snobbishness that, that makes me want to argue about whether somebody's idea of reality is, is real or not? You know, I, I imagine you both have heard uh, of recent... I think this study has been done a, a few times and it's a really simple thing. You know, you take all these uh, very well-educated, very experienced uh, wine tasters, and you change the labels on the bottles, and uh, you also blindfold them so they, they're, they're not experiencing the, the other sensory input of the wine. And 99% of the time, it completely throws off their judgment of the wine. But here's the thing. Yes, yeah, so we can say uh, some wine is overpriced <laughs> and, and wine tasting is purely subjective and people who claim to have palates that are specifically tuned to expensive wines versus cheap wines, that may be a bunch of BS. But I think the good news in a study like that is to say kind of what we're saying here perception in that case is a reality and the perception is dependent upon a number of factors 
if I have an amazing experience with a $10 bottle of wine because I'm with people that I enjoy sitting with in a restaurant that I enjoy and it's sort of a perfect night, great. The value of that experience is incredibly high. If I have a $200 bottle of wine and it's a miserable experience because of whatever other factors are there, then I, I don't experience the value of being overcharged or charged the correct amount for that bottle of wine. So everything that we do is, is wrapped up in the experience that we bring to it and all the other environmental factors around it. So, yeah, Ken, you know, to your point, I, I think it's an easy thing to be able to say, well, you didn't go to the real place. You didn't have the real experience. But if somebody got something out of that, maybe intellectually they understand, I didn't actually go to England, I didn't actually go into an English pub, but there was something about the experience of being in the uh, the replicated version that stuck with me, that, that, that gave me an experience I wouldn't otherwise have and allowed me to step out of my usual reality for a minute. I, I think there is still some value to that even if we say it's not quote unquote real. Ken, you can, so I'm here in New York. You can come here to New York and say you had an amazing weekend in New York city and spend most of your time in times square. That's a real experience. Um, it's not where most of the locals spend most of their time. And it's also an environment that is mostly catered towards tourists and people who love Broadway. But that's a real experience. So how do we judge? This gets back to your first question. What is reality? What is an authentic New York City experience? There are infinite authentic New York City experiences. And yours is no different than mine. So how do we define what's real or not? Um, I don't know. Sweet. Italy, <laughs> by the way, Italy, Italy is not real, but it's so real. So there's my, there's my little New York vote. Hey, it's we have easy. a video caller that we want to, yeah. And it's all right there. It's a little confusing though, about where you pay yeah. for people who have been there. You know what I'm talking about? Um, we have a video caller who's going to come up in just a moment, but first we have a little bit of business we want to do, but before we even get to the business, we want to remind you that you can be like our video caller. Dave will be joining us in a moment and join us yourself. Uh, click on the Zoom link or call 669-900-6833, 669-900-6833. I haven't asked Ali's permission for this, but I'm going to go ahead and say, if there is a particular thing in a particular episode of Star Trek that has always driven you nuts, hmm. then you've always wondered, did they do the right thing? Is this the right thing? What does that mean? You know, call in and, and throw it because uh, the worst thing Ali will do is curse at you and tell you never to call again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. true. I, I feel certain that's going to happen. Uh, we do have uh, we do have a bit of business that we want to hit. We want to remind people, John, about the uh, about the really cool shop that we have with the really cool stuff. The really cool shop. I love that yeah. shop. Yes. How do I get to it, Ken? <laughs> One of my favorite places to virtually go. Uh, missionlogpodcast.com is is where it is, and then you click on shop because you know there's a shop there and that's where you find really cool things. Uh, our friend Carl is cranking out just a ton of stuff all the time. We, we talked about new shirts last week. Come to think of it, we only talked about the new shirts last week and yet possible number one fan Meredith has yeah. already availed herself of those wares. Yes. Yes. She sent a picture of the Lieutenant junior J shirt and 
the carbon and uh, carbon chauvinism shirt side by side, looking uh, looking pretty sartorially splendiferous. Uh, I would say those are brand new designs that went up last week. Ken, you're you're, you're uh, shaking your head like uh, like you're just shocked that that I well, no, I shirts in that way. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm I'm pretty sure that you just made up at least three of those words. <laughs> so, Whatever. You, so yeah, yeah, carbon chauvinism. Yes, that's there. Uh, the new Lieutenant Jun- Junior J shirt. Uh, Isolinear John Kenner there. And of course, uh, there are some shirts that have been up there for a while now, John. Yes, yeah. So we have the Cool as Kirk, uh, which is a, a classic, one of the original Mission Log designs. Uh, you also have Ditalix Mining Corporation. Remember, what's yours is mine. We also have the tribute to Nova Squadron. You've got Bonk Bonk on the head since 1966 and the old uh, Ethos Pathos logos. And here's the thing. I'm going to be adding more classic designs and then new designs as they come out. So keep an eye on that shop. So easy to get to missionlogpodcast.com. Click on shop and uh, and show your love for Lieutenant J. Yeah, for Lieutenant J, for Carl, for us, you know, for everybody. And then what's really cool is hopefully we're all going to get together someplace and we're all going to be wearing these shirts and nobody else is going to be wearing these shirts. And, and it's not to feel, you know, superior or better. It's just, hey, we'll all know each other. And we're like, hey, you you went to missionlogpodcast.com slash no, not slash anything, and then clicked on shop. Yeah, to be clear, Ken, those people will be wearing shirts. Those other people subscribe, <laughs> just not necessarily a Lieutenant J shirt. You don't know. Okay. All right. <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't know what conventions you go to when you're not in Vegas. Seems uh, likely. It seems likely they will be wearing shirts. Hey, uh, so, so we put out the call for callers, and probably we should go ahead and get to a caller. Uh, Dave, yeah. Dave is here, man. What's on your mind tonight, Dave? Hey, how's it going? I'm really enjoying the conversation tonight. It's uh, it's very real. Um, <laughs> I guess my my question is, you know, is is all of this real or is it, you know, just you'll kidding. never know. You'll never know, Dave. Yeah. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, just kind of reflecting on Star Trek and and some of the conversations you guys had last week uh, with uh, you know around the science of science fiction. Um, in real life, you know, they put astronauts through these these rigorous trainings, uh, you know, to to get to, to prepare them for the psychological rigors of being on the space station or potentially going to Mars or whatever. Um, because yeah, it's it's really tough on the human body and the human mind to like go into space and actually you know do these uh, fantastical things. Now, in Star Trek, obviously, it's a TV show, but um, you know, they, they, every week the ship is in peril. There's uh, there's a lot of just you know mind uh, mind bleepery going on, uh, but everybody in Starfleet seems pretty well put together. Um, everybody seems to you know no, no, nobody's really uh, you know uh, uh, c- completely losing their stuff. So my question is, uh, how how well do you think the show really deals with you know what it would really be uh, to to experience this stuff and what must the Starfleet Academy train, um, you know, to prepare people to go out and do these things and like, you know, basically not, not lose their, you know, what, when they're up. 
Uh, Dave, I love that question. And um, one of the things that NASA spends um, and, and the other international space agencies spend a lot of time doing is uh, re- uh, two things. One is the teamwork, making sure that crews that are going out together, they work well together, they can communicate with each other, they understand each other. There's a good mixture of different perspectives. Um, we know that mixed gender crews tend to do better than single gender crews. So there's a lot of stuff that happens on earth simulations getting the teams getting uh, getting going and ready to work together the other thing that the international um, uh, space community does is they try to create environments in space that are very similar to earth and this gets back to virtual reality too a mission to mars is going to require a lot of virtual reality it's going to be the first time when astronauts are so far away that they can't see earth anymore i think mission or day 130 or something like that they'll lose uh they'll lose view of earth um which we don't really know what that's going to be like that's the number one recreational activity nasa uh, astronauts have is looking at planet earth so um taking that to star trek we don't really know too much about the experience that people get in um, Starfleet Academy. We know they have a lot of classes. We know they have a lot of lectures. I was just recently watching a few episodes of Star Trek Voyager, which I know we're not quite there yet in Mission Log, but this is Mission Log Live, so anything yeah, can happen. Anything can happen. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's uh, we're in the nexus again. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but they do talk about zero G training. I think Belana Torres talks about it. Um, I think with Tom in a certain episode, and we know that they are pushed physically. We don't really see that happening too much. There aren't really many episodes about it. I have to assume that they uh, Starfleet. Uh, puts in a lot of effort into that. Uh, if we have the Kobayashi Maru, which is a, uh, such a uh, psychological test, and Wesley Crusher, we saw the test that he went through. It seems like Starfleet puts a lot of effort into training their officers. So it's likely that the crews that we see on the Enterprise, on Voyager, on DS9, on the Defiant, are exceptionally well-trained and have been through a lot of the rigors of spaceflight, both in holodecks and actual real-world scenarios. Uh, By the way, uh, uh, Thomas, who uh, wrote it on the Facebook page, says uh, there might be a lot of in-between weeks we don't get to see where everyone is just relaxing and drinking hot chocolate. (laughs) He's probably, you're very, I think you're onto something, Thomas, definitely. Yeah. Um, and then Chris, uh, Chris brings up a good point. Why does the crew of the Enterprise D keep pictures of starscapes in their cabins? <laughs> Couldn't they just look out a window? <laughs> Chris, so true. So very true. That might actually be there for the people at, uh, at you know, who are building the starships, though, because they never get to see the stars, right? They're, they're yeah. just kind of, you know, welding. Well, that, that's all a little the time, selfish. I'm just going to say that's a little selfish uh, right mm-hmm. away. That's fine. You can be the psychologist for the people who build the next enterprise. Yeah, hey, Dave, thank you very much. Thank you very yeah. much for calling in and call back again no sometime. Okay. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, guys. So uh, there's a question that we've been kicking around, Ali, for the past uh, few weeks. I'm kind of curious about um, something we started with really, or most recently in the Deep Space Nine episode, Captive Pursuit, is wondering about our uh, creations and how we treat them and mm-hmm. what that says about us. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, uh, 
when we begin to talk about the idea of a manufactured intelligence or an artificial intelligence or whatever, or robots that aren't even necessarily, you know, thought to be intelligent, but that are certainly much more human than anything we've had before. Yeah. Um, I mean, do we even need to worry about whether or not they're alive first, or do we need to make sure that we're, do we need to worry about how we're treating these things, whether they're alive or not? I, I think it, it's, important to just think about this step or two before that, which is what are the values that we are placing into the artificial intelligence or to the creation? So this is a huge issue that's happening right now with social media, with Facebook, the Facebook algorithm, with uh, Twitter, with YouTube, and a lot of how these algorithms work is based upon the values that we have uh, intentionally or unconsciously programmed into the algorithm. So you, you take Facebook, for example. Facebook has historically valued how much time you're spending within Facebook. And so what, what has been discovered by the algorithm is really intense, controversial, emotional content gets people plugged in YouTube or plugged in Facebook longer. So really controversial political stories get people fired up, whatever side of the story you're on, and they have people engage in outrage and all of that sort of stuff. So whether we like it or not, we've programmed that value into this AI, and it's now affecting millions of people, and it's affecting the days of millions of people and our experience there. So your question is, it takes a step further and is when do we need to worry if this becomes alive there? Here's the tricky part to that is it's going to be, this is probably going to happen. Maybe it'll happen in our lifetime. Um, if not, it's going to happen at some point. It's going to be very hard to tell if an artificial intelligence is completely self-aware or if it's very good at mimicking self-awareness or number three, if our measures for self-awareness are poor measures for AI self-awareness. So um, I'll say one more thing and then um, we can talk about this. We've considered objective self-awareness to be a big measure of being a um, sentient life form that you recognize yourself as a thing. And so humans, when we get old enough, uh, when we're a couple of years of age, we look in a mirror and we recognize that that's us. And for, for decades and decades, we've thought that no other species can really do that or very few species can do that. We just recently discovered that dogs have this ability, but it's not through vision, it's through smell, that they can recognize their own, they can recognize themselves through their smells. So how are we going to do this with AI? Maybe the measures that we have are just not going to be sufficient enough for measuring uh, self-awareness or the AI is going to be so good at mimicking it, it'll appear to be self-aware, but it might not actually be. Not to be horrible though. I mean, how do we, uh, what's the difference between self-awareness and just responding to input? I mean, I, I look in the mirror, I see me, but I, I mean, did I, did that happen inherently or did I learn that from someone else? Am I learning from other people's response to that, that that's me? And so then if you have an AI that's like, yeah, I think therefore I am, it's like, well, he said the words, so I guess maybe, <laughs> I mean, is that, I, I don't know, I, I, I go a bit nuts trying to figure out 
self-awareness, but I'm not as smart as some people. Hey, I want to go back to that conversation, but we may have to do it later because we actually have another, we have another caller on the line. Uh, is it Myra? Yes. Hi. Hey, Myra. Hi. Thanks for calling Myra. in tonight. Uh, my pleasure. And thank you guys for your hard work there at Mission Log, as well as Computer. I can't leave out Computer. <laughs> I've been listening to you guys since you were knee high to a grasshopper. And we'll... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot more to go. So, and thank you for this episode tonight. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for the call. And, uh, and what provocative question do you have for our guests tonight? Well, it really, um, hopefully it'll come out as a question. I was thinking about that, in my opinion, you know, the simulations are real, the holodecks are real. And I wondered if you factor in things like, uh, the Geordie Manchurian Candidate episode, and um, no spoilers, uh, because we're not not there yet um, in the course of DS9, but, uh, you know, one of the characters experiences an imprisonment over a few days, and it felt like 20 years to him, you know, hard time. And so, you know, to these individuals, this felt truly and deeply real. And, uh, you know, is there some sort of substantive difference between you know, okay, this is implanted in them, or maybe since they didn't walk into the holodeck, you know, this this happened outside of their knowledge, so therefore, it's definitely real, versus if I go into the holodeck and press a button, and I'm subjecting myself to it, so somewhere in my mind, I recognize, oh, well, this can't be real. So, it's not really a question, but maybe just to add to the thought and the fun discussion. Hmm. I, I I love this line of thought, Myra. Um one of the things that I've been kind of kicking around as we talk tonight and, and talking about the experience and a holodeck is, is that we might be putting too much, too much emphasis on the mechanics of the holodeck and, and where it is and how it works and, and how you interact with it, as opposed to simply the experience of being there. Um, I, uh, I, if you've listened to the show for a while, you, you probably know that I've said on more than one occasion that uh, I, I don't have any supernatural beliefs in, in particular. You know, chalk it up to whatever supernatural beliefs you want to talk about. But something that I found really interesting uh, when I was in college, I, I uh, wrote some papers on this for uh, religion classes. And uh, then later on, as I kind of dove into uh, uh, scientific skepticism, stuff like that, is that the, the experience that somebody has is still real regardless of the mechanics of what they're experiencing. So someone who believes that they had a religious experience, or someone who believes that they had an interaction with something supernatural, the experience is still real. The emotion, the brain chemistry, all of that is still real. The confusion or the question might be simply what triggered it. So we, we would have to ask ourselves, okay, well, it's not that a person is making up the experience they're actually going through it. They are actually going through an experience. And and when you extrapolate to a holodeck, you're just saying, well, now we've got a piece of technology that makes that experience indistinguishable from the quote-unquote real thing. So I, I love this idea that, that at a certain point, and uh, Ali, as you were talking about a, a computer that would pass the test for AI, we've talked about this on the show before as well, the Turing test, at a certain point, it really just becomes an academic question. Mm -hmm. 
It, it really is because it's not about does that thing have a mind of its own? Does that thing have consciousness? If we can't tell the difference, then we don't even need to ask the question anymore. If we can't tell the difference, then it is. We, we, from that point on, we will interact with that thing as if it did or if it does. It, there's a couple of um, ideas that came to my mind, John, as you're, as you're describing that. And one is, you know, if someone believes a house is haunted and they believe that they saw something there and um, we find out later that uh, the hallucinations that they were experiencing were actually because of carbon monoxide poisoning and you tell that to the, per- to, to the person, what happens then? Uh, does that ex- does that experience the vision that they saw or the experience that they had? Is that any less real? Or maybe if you use a recreational drug and you have a hallucination and delusion, is that experience any less real? And at what point do we define what what is reality? And then, as you were saying, John, at what point does it does it matter? The other idea I had was a little bit less fun and a little bit more dark, and um, that gets to uh, things like waterboarding. So we can simulate the experience of being drowned very easily. And once we take off your visual sense, once we have a blindfold, your mind will fill in the gaps of that experience. And it can be, it can, you can very easily make someone feel as if they're drowning. Um, what is that experience real? And again, does it matter if it makes you feel the thing that you think you're feeling? Yeah, indeed. Um, Myra, do you have any other uh, thoughts or questions tonight? Myra's, Myra's gone. Oh, Myra's gone. I mean, she's oh. not gone. She's just no. not connected. Myra. I'm, okay. I'm sure wherever she is, she's fine. I don't Was mean to Myra ever really there? No, that's a good question. Well, yeah. we're, we're all talking about her, so I think she must have been. Hey, a really quick reminder. Are we going to do the lightning round, or do you want to stay deep tonight, dude? Well, I, I think we should definitely lighten things up. with. All right. All right. We'll do the lightning round in a moment. Hopefully, Ali knows what that is, and if he doesn't, we'll, we'll let him know. want to remind <laughs> you really quickly, though, coming up in about 45, 40, no, that's not right, 35 minutes, uh, the good people at Priority One are going to start doing their show, because, yeah, we do our show, and then this other show from the Roddenberry Podcast Network does their show as well. Uh, each Tuesday at 11.30 Eastern, 8.30 Pacific, Elijah, Kenna, and Tony bring you news from all over the Star Trek multiverse. Uh, they do it live. They do it live, just like we do here. Uh, like I say, they kick off a few minutes after our show every Tuesday night. So, you know, yeah, leave your computer running, go grab a snack, do whatever you need to do, and then settle in for Priority One, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast streaming live as it happens facebook.com slash priority one podcast. And as always, if you miss it live, go to iTunes, go to priority one podcast.com um, find their show. Cause they, they do a really, uh, they do a great show, very different than ours, which is one of the reasons that we love having them on the network. Uh, we cover one thing, they cover another thing, women at warp and the Trek files. We're each, we're each coming at star Trek from different angles. Uh, but we feel like each one of those shows is something that everybody might like. So Start with Priority One. I'll actually start with Mission Log and Mission Log Live, and then Priority One, <laughs> and then pick and choose as you like. Um, Ali, are you familiar with the uh, Mission Log Live lightning round? I don't think so. You, you, okay. you all didn't do this when we had the Discovery episode. Mm-hmm. No, and, and funny thing, uh, we keep 
accidentally forgetting to tell guests that we're going to do it. <laughs> but if you if you if you spend any time, you know, around uh, Western media, you know what the lightning round is. We throw a bunch yep. of questions at you. You throw back answers ASAP. Right. Right. All right. Uh, favorite Star Trek series? Uh, Star Trek: Deep Space Nine. Okay. You can't stay a human and you can't be Vulcan. What Star Trek race or species would you be? Andorian. I like Damn. the blue skin. Okay. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, favorite Star Trek bad guy. Oh, um, uh, Chancer. Uh, what's his name? Star Trek six, the undiscovered country. I patch. Uh, he loves Shakespeare and it's original. Chang? Klingon. Oh, Chang. Chang. Yeah. Yeah. The, Chang. The yeah. Christopher Plummer. Yeah. 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 Christopher Plummer. Wonderful. Uh, favorite Star Trek starship. Oh, why do you ask me such tough questions? <laughs> um, 1701, 1701 refit uh, from the motion picture. That is the correct answer. Very yeah. good. Yeah. Very good. Thank uh, you. Have you seen the animated series? Yes. Only because of you all. Oh, uh, so you have a double correct answer. You get an extra point for that one. <laughs> uh, favorite psychologist from history. That's a really, really tough question. Um, I'm curious in your training and in your education in the field, yeah. who who spoke to you? you know? Oh, okay. I mean, this is this is a little bit of a of a niche pick, but uh, uh, Wolpe or Wolpe? I also forget how to pronounce his name. Uh, he was a behavioral therapist in um, in South Africa. He was uh, just super calm, cool nice guy you'd want him to be your grandpa and he was one of my supervisor's supervisors so uh there we go that is very good now uh conversely do you have a favorite fictional psychologist you know like a like a hannibal lecter he might not counselor troy uh no see right (laughs) um favorite fictional psychologist they're also bad at Mm -hmm. being psychologists um I almost feel like, I mean, I know it's a psychiatrist, not a psychologist, but I almost feel like you go with Freud because he's been done in movies and TV shows and comedy <laughs> so many times that good. Yeah. I'd imagine he's real or was real. But, you know, hey, what's real, man? What's real? Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say no, John. I, I don't have one. I think that's good. I think it's a fair answer. Yep. Uh, your favorite technology from Star Trek? Uh, lightning round, think, 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 think. Um, I really liked replicators as a kid and I like communicators, but we kind of have that technology now. So I'm going to go with something even cooler, which is warp drive. Okay. Yeah, uh, this is actually from our friends at priority one. Uh, somebody brings a plate of brownies. Do you take an edge piece or a middle piece? Uh, middle piece. I like it soft. Interesting. And finally, have you been to Vulcan, Alberta, Canada? No, but I've, okay been to star trek the experience or rest in peace yeah yeah that's not bad you know i heard john by the way uh, i was talking to somebody apparently the the town council in vulcan yeah actually dresses up like starfleet crew oh that is now yeah. two reasons to go there three if you count the name so get drug drexler back on the phone because i can oh. now answer the question as far as why somebody would go oh no um, there, there was a whole thread last week of of everything to do there are there are star trek easter eggs all over the place there are statues there are businesses named after star trek look before long there's going to be a john and ken statue i'm, I'm certain <laughs> of it reaching up to the stars yeah to sort of yeah sure. speaking of that is there anything similar in bozeman montana 
at the oh, scene of first contact? They should, uh, other than the home of Brandon Braga. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I can't answer that question. Hey, um, Ali, we uh, as 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 happens when you're on, uh, it just the time just flies. We're actually at the end of it now. But before we say goodbye to everybody, can you remind people uh, where you would like for them to go and find you? Yeah, I'd love to continue the conversation on Twitter at Ali Matu, A L I M A T T U. You can also find me on Facebook at. Um, the psych show and i'm also on youtube the psych show and for some of my writings on star trekky stuff go to brainknowsbetter.com. it awesome. is uh it is a true pleasure to have you on and uh, i hope we can do it again uh in the r- relatively near future i would love that thanks for having me on have a great one ali mission yeah. log live is produced by roddenberry entertainment Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Technical production on Mission Log Live is by Infinity Network's producer, Brandon Bradley. Be sure to visit podcast.roddenberry.com for the latest from the Roddenberry Podcast Network, including Mission Log, Women at War, Priority One, Trek Files, and more. Thank you to everyone who joined us live or later, and we will be back to talk to you next week, Tuesday at 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern, here on Facebook Live. podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network